Hi everyone, today is March 30th, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Um, our guest today is Alan Lerner, who is the director of the Brain Health and Memory Center at University Hospital Cl at Cleveland Medical Center and professor of neurology and neurological institute chair for memory and cognition at the Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. And I think there's probably a few more titles that I'm just forgetting, but that's enough. That's enough. So <laughs> he's a clinical neurologist who's also board certified in psychiatry. Are you to be your neurologist? You don't. Well, it's the same board. Oh, is it? It's oh, the it's the same. Okay, I didn't. The historical thing is neurology and psychiatry are the same right? board. Okay. But it's a different residency. It's a different residency. It's a different certificate. I get the adult oh. neurology, okay. but it's the same uh, board. Okay, and he's also a key player in cl clinical research on Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And um, so around the room, we've got um, Asif uh, Marouf. Hi, Asif. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I'm uh, looking at the title of your, the Brain Health and Memory Center at Cleveland Medical Center. Mm -hmm. Can you, so brain health as mm -hmm. an initiative is something that we keep hearing about from mm -hmm. so many um, medical schools and now not so much medical mm -hmm. schools, but all kinds of universities. Mm -hmm. It means different things to different people, but is there an actual one sort of meaning behind brain health? Uh, um, it, I think brain it? health started as something of a more positive euphemism for neurodegeneration. That's the way I understand Dementia it. <laughs> and neurodegeneration are kind of a downer. And so, you know, this concept arrived of brain health. And, you know, health is an integrative concept. And, you know, I, I said that my original concept was, you know, brain death equals death, brain health equals health. But I think I have a more nuanced view of it now. And I think of brain health as a wellness model across the lifespan. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. So this starts with things in childhood, reading to your children, uh, lead paint abatement, uh, then in teenagers, things like sports concussions. We run a sports concussion program. Uh, then, you know, in, as you move into older groups, you think about trauma and HIV that affect brain function. And then there's the effects of diabetes and hypertension on uh, brain function. And lastly, and as we get into uh, older age groups, we think of the neurodegenerative disorders. Parkinson's, ALS, prion disorders, Alzheimer's disease. So, so how important I, in all of that? Can I ask a question? I'm a little bit curious about, like, so how old is the term and the movement? And was there anything yeah. specifically, like, Some origins, putting sorry. it, like, together, why this view became as popular as it was? Or just I think like, it started about 10 years ago. I first read it from my colleague Peter Whitehouse. And Peter is sort of like a... A wide-ranging thinker, let's just say that. I mean, he wrote that book, The Myth of Alzheimer's Disease, after having worked in the field for 20 years yeah. himself. Um, then I think I first saw it when I was visiting Hong Kong, that they had a brain health center. And I think, to me, it was the positive message, the, you know, an inter integrative model, which we think of, you know, that's one of the wraps on doctors, right? Is doctors, you know, break things apart, organs. And, uh, um, but so that, that appealed to me and it, it does send a more positive measure. Now there have been some sort of backlash against this. 
what disorders should be included. Is MS, multiple sclerosis, should that be in the, you know, is brain health just a euphemism for neurodegeneration? You know, epilepsy. Well, what about migraine headaches? What about uh, Down syndrome? You know, uh, developmental disorders. You know, I mean, where where are the limits? And as far as I'm concerned, you know, these are art- these lines are kind of artificial. I mean, I think a lot of people view it as neurodegeneration, plain and simple. But I think that there is room for under health, especially since we already put in sports concussions. Right? Why not epilepsy and epilepsy surgery? And why not movement disorders too? Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, oh, you don't get a seat at the table uh, in defining, especially since it's a new field, which it really does, as Selma pointed out, is uh, lacking in certain uh, definition. So how important is sort of the understanding the fundamental mechanisms in healthy brain development, these core basic science disciplines that we then sort of build as a backdrop for the more clinical types of models that look at degeneration and pathologies. Is that part of this story? I think it is. I think the, you know, in some ways, uh, my career could be summed up about definitions of normal. Uh, You know, that before you deal with abnormal, you have to deal with normal. And that's not so simple. And, you know, so I, the first uh, research I was ever involved with was uh, uh, in endocrinology. And this was in the early 80s. I was a computer programmer at the time. And the idea of um, gene expression or cryptic disorders, these were people with hormone levels that looked like they were patients, but they were clinically normal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was a really a novel concept in the 1980s. You know, what, what, what's, what's the definition of normal? You know, who decides? You know, we all agree that lines need to be drawn, but who gets to decide what they are? And it's kind of, it's a political question. Uh, And so, um, you know, I think that before, I think basic science has a huge role in telling us how the brain functions at the molecular level, at the cellular level, at the level of systems integration, you know, visual system versus language. Uh, and uh, and how it uh, is integrated across the neuraxis too, you know, movement, you know, uh, head movements, eye movements, how, all those things, and the role of emergent properties as you move up the scale is, you know, because from the perspective of a neuron, there's essentially no such thing as a brain, right? They have no concept about what's going on in the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. You know, we've even redefined, you know, what is connectivity, you know, connectivity used to mean a synapse, right? And now connectivity could be the fMRI time series. So, you know, our n- notions about this have moved into a much more d- dynamic brain. Mm-hmm. And I think basic science is really important in that. You talked about it, kind of a, a new view of Alzheimer's. And, and Asif, you mentioned it in previous podcasts, too, about how this idea of prevention and that the disease itself begins so far in advance of any actual degeneration of phenotype in terms of behavior and memory or in terms of actually uh, brain pathways, white matter stuff that you get to see in end-stage people. How right is it to call it degeneration when we 
don't necessarily know that that's a fundamental hallmark of the disease. Well, I think that the idea is that there's is sort of a deterministic pathway, that if you develop amyloid, you're more likely to develop a tauopathy, and that will eventually result in uh, clinical dementia that, you know, once you're you know, started almost like a developmental pathway. Once you start expressing a gene, you know, that, that ramifies. Uh, the, the same c- sort of analogy could be made, that once you start developing out cerebral amyloidosis, don't even call it a disease, just call it what it is, that another cascade of, of uh, reactions is going to occur now with tau, now with, uh, you know, so the concept of degeneration implies cell death without inflammation. But we know inflammation is involved at the with microglia and astrocytic level. So even the term is sort of a little bit ambiguous. So it came up last week with Gemma Casa de Sus. Uh-huh. Um, you were talking about the sort of uh, clinical indicators of sort of regular frontotemporal dementia versus Alzheimer's. And you're the guy who, like, Mm -hmm. knows all about this. Are you able to, with any kind of real certainty, really predict at some point? Like, what are those, where's the point in the sort of pathological progression that you're able to say, aha, you know, what is the sort of the the clinical hallmark? And then what about things like, are you, you've you've written about biomarker analyses mm-hmm. and things as, as uh, predictors right. or diagnoses. Right. Can you talk about some of that? Sure. I mean, so, you know, almost anything can happen once. <laughs> you know, we can all make a wrong turn, didn't make us feel good. You know, we can forget an appointment. You know, so from a clinical perspective, it's the pattern that matters. You know, that it occurs on a regular basis, particularly when it's occurring on a daily basis and in multiple contexts at work. Uh, at home, you know, the, the, that, that's an important piece. Um, you know, diagnosis starts, of course, with taking a history. And there, I'm just, besides looking at the pattern, you're just kind of getting a sense of what the symptoms are and which function, you know, is it a problem with words? You know, is it a language? You know, because everybody calls it a memory problem, but they don't always specify what exactly what sort of memory problem it is. And one of the cases that we see a lot of, because we're a referral center, is this visual variant of Alzheimer's disease, which tends to be younger, you know, people in their late 50s, even into their 60s. And, you know, again, the, you, you start hearing it, the missed exit on the expressway, not re- remembering faces. Uh, we went to Niagara Falls, you know, you know, it, it, it's like everything's visual. And, you know, you start hearing it, it becomes a pattern in your head, you know, and, you know, or word finding. You know, a certain amount of word finding is normal, and how do you distinguish normal and abnormal is is a key because, as we've seen, normal is a moving target throughout the life. So it's normal at 80 might not be normal at 50. So I was wondering whether the the way that people take histories has changed very much, or is it going to change based on other things that we know? Because in some ways, it's funny, because what you start with, really, it is like the person and the way you talk about it and the way it is, and it has to be converted into... Uh, you know, a diagnosis that has all these other things that people are trying to work on and whether there's a feedback to the way that people take history based on 
what people think of the brain health or the neurodegeneration. Yeah. Well, if you're totally into biomarkers, the patient is basically unreliable and noisy <laughs> and not worth talking to. And there's a lot of people who are much more comfortable with biomarkers. <laughs> and despite the fact that they haven't been validated and we don't totally know what they mean, and, you know, we can find elevated amyloid in your brain and, you know, and then we're back to, well, you're at slightly increased risk. How much risk? Uh, I don't know. You know, uh, to me, again, I'm a clinician. And so person, the humanistic person-centered approach to it uh, matters. I'm going to take this a little further. Does it matter what we call it? That's that was a, my next question. Uh, you know, yeah. and, you know, the good Talmudical answer is yes and no. Uh <laughs> So no, because you're the same person before the polysyllabic name is uh, slapped on you. <laughs> then you walk out of the office, you're the same person. You say issues are the same. If you have a care, you know, if it's progressed to the point where there's dementia and there's a caregiver, you know, that caregiving is generic. It doesn't matter. They know what they're up against, whether it's a motor problem like Parkinson's disease with a tremor or a form of frontotemporal dementia with language disturbance or ALS or Alzheimer's, you know, that, that, you know, that caregiving of the, at the person level, that doesn't matter so much. On the other hand, the words have meaning and we cannot, I try and avoid guessing. I'd rather just say, you know, describe it and try to understand it. Uh, because I think if you can, if people can understand what they're dealing with, they can put up with a lot. And, you know, oftentimes it does take, you know, since they come, they need a scan, they might need a PET scan, they may, you know, there could be a, a sizable delay of even weeks or even a couple of months till we have a better uh, handle on what is happening to them. But I think these words have meaning. And well, the, I mean, it has deep potential meaning, especially when you talk about these correlational right. studies right. of saying someone has Alzheimer's and they're looking at a large population and trying to correlate yeah. things like yeah. every, everything is being correlated right, right. now. With, well, with the model for uh, Alzheimer's disease has been um, AIDS and cancer. Hmm. And cancer, you wouldn't, we don't accept a guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, it's, it's based on, you know, diagnosis is based on gestalt. You know, you have this and this, and you're this age, and you have that symptom and that family history, and then we sort of fill in the blanks. Um, but in cancer, you have the thing under the microscope. And, you know, you know, if you just guessed, well, maybe it's just breast cancer, you know. Well, maybe it's just Alzheimer's disease, you know. Well, you know, you've just, you know, who's going to wipe them off the floor? Uh, do you see what I'm saying? That it's... But guessing is, you know, and just to give people an answer for the sake of giving them an answer it may not be such a bright idea. So I'm trying, you know, and I think truly that most of the time when we say you have Alzheimer's disease, we mean you probably have Alzheimer's disease, that all diagnoses come with a statistical component. I have a cough. I go to the doctor. I have bronch. You have bronchitis. Did he look in my bronchi? <laughs> did he do a swab? You know, he did a chest X-ray. Well, the chest X-ray was negative, so it must be bronchitis. Well, you know, there's a statistical uh, 
you know, number that goes with the, you know, sensitivity and specificity and positive and negative predictive values from information theory. But, you know, we, we tend to leave that piece out and say, oh, the doctor said I have bronchitis and we just accept it as fact. Well, the doctor says I have Alzheimer's disease. Sometimes they're right. And, you know, just remember that if you, you know, let's say Alzheimer's is 60% of dementias. So if you just told everybody you had Alzheimer's disease, you'd be right more often than you're wrong. Can we do better? You know, from, and this is where biomarkers and scans and lab tests come in. So I think it really is important to, you know, both for future studies, you know, now I want to be in an Alzheimer's clinical trial. I better have the condition under, under consideration to, before I get in a clinical trial. So where do I go next? Uh, it does depend on, a lot on, you know, it, it's a very, very important question to uh, ask about that. You were discussing a little bit about ambiguity in diagnosis and how we need to try and minimize that. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about um, integrating genetic testing or, as you mentioned, biomarkers. And, um, like, is that happening more frequently now in the clinical setting where people will donate, um, I don't know, cells or, or cerebrospinal fluid or things like that to... Yeah, I mean, with the diagnosis, I, it's unclear how much the biomarkers uh, really help. I mean, it would seem to help. Most of them times we're using them in the unusual cases. You know, there's a world of difference between the 54 year old and the 84 year old. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, after, let's let's just take the oldest group. After age 85, the relationship between dementia and amyloid breaks down. And the studies of Julie Schneider at Rush suggest that that mixed dementia is the most common dementia after age 85. So after, the, you know, so when somebody who's 90, does it matter? You know, again, coming back to the, does it, it matter? It seems to matter a lot less, okay? But, you know, if you're dealing with the more unusual cases, the early on, particularly the early onset or the rapidly progressive, mm-hmm. uh, then you sort of have to, uh, up the game. We've had a couple of cases where um, very specific uh, gene mutations were able to be found because we did have a, you know, uh, something really to hang our hat on. Uh, there was a case of uh, somebody who had a familial inclusion body myositis and then developed a language disorder. Now, this has been uh, linked familial Inclusion body myositis has been linked to vallosin-containing protein, which is a gene which is associated with frontotemporal dementia. And so with that knowledge, yes, I was able to diagnose, you know, with, you know, where I knew where I was going. Um, you know, a couple, we've had the case of a neurodegeneration with brain iron, you know, where you're able to get yourself on the short list. And that's generally a good idea. And even with whole exome sequencing now, that's sort of the next wave, but it still helps to have the short list. This is what I'm particularly concerned about. I think that this is going to really help us, with, especially with rare gene variants. And we'll, you know, it's, it's, it's not a population-based thing, so it's not going to be that helpful if you're just looking for populate, you know, at populations. I think I was asking, yeah, that's, 
So I think that there's a role for genetic testing. I don't think, you know, the 23andMe, uh, you know, the, the issue, of, this is, gets down to a, a fundamental problem, and I think you're asking a really important question. You know, the, the classic case is the health fair. And this is how people, unfortunately, do research. You know, if I had a new, if one of your students developed a new test, what would you do? You'd get 25 Alzheimer's patients and 25 normals. So your population frequency would be 0.5. Well, when you get to the health fair, your um, your population frequency is 0.01. And so the positive predictive value takes a huge hit right off. And so the case finding in a, pop, in a health fair is almost worthless. Mm. And it is not an effective approach. Uh, you do better to wait for the symptomatic people to come to you because that's where, that's how you enrich your population. Does that make sense? So I've, the basic science principle of information theory applies here. And this is, I rely a lot on information theory to help me through my day because this is what really constitutes clinical reasoning for us uh, before you get to the clinical. So, you know, that's, uh, that's another example of a basic science that's really very helpful in, uh, you know, is looking at what are those underlying population probabilities. So, you know, like I say, at a health fair, you know, doing the mini mental state examination, and you can go through that, uh, you know, kind of a Bayesian analysis, and you realize that it's almost worthless uh, to, to do population screening. You know, could we be using amyloid scans as the next colonoscopy? You know, it's time. Well, Dad, you're seventy. Yeah, right. Well, colonoscopy is pretty expensive too. It's less invasive. It is radioactive. Okay, but you know, can we be using these new technologies? Actually, I think you'd do better with the mo- You know, with less uh, um, rocket science and more just sort of generic kind uh, <laughs> of screening, which is cheap, but not sexy. I mean, you know, have a $3 million scanner, you can use it. Uh, <laughs> find a way to use it. Well, so is it possible that some of those, some of those well, whether you go that far in terms of expense, I mean, it's always a question. But even if the biomarkers are not great for diagnosis or there's problems with that, it may help organize the basic science studies that are, people are doing because you just have such a... Because with all the difference, right, the heterogeneity, yeah, the heterogeneity, producing heterogeneity, yeah, and so you may make progress, not specifically on the the clinical thing, whatever Alzheimer's is, but at least the studying the basic science of whatever this basic science you're studying, right? Well, you do the same with mice in your lab, right? You use uh, bulb C mice, right? You know why? Because we want to, you know, just any old mouse won't do. Right, it's the same concept. Is reduce how do you reduce heterogeneity, and so in a certain and in restricted uh, uh, conditions like a clinical trial, biomarkers are very useful. You know, so now we're seeing the use of biomarkers, particularly evidence of amyloidosis, whether it's spinal fluid or PET scanning as entry criteria into clinical trials, and that would seem to make sense. 
So has, has there been any, any um, in, I mean, I'm sure there's been interest, but what, what have people found in looking at sort of large-scale bioinformatics type stuff with like Scandinavian populations where you have generations of like great medical data and, you know, also genome data now in the last couple of generations, or last generation and a half or so, I guess. Is, is there any, um, are there any sort of brute force methods that are, are going in that direction to kind of correlate in this realm of, of being able to sort of predict and, and protect potentially um, over the lifetime? Well, certainly uh, those kinds of methods are good. For example, in uh, presenilin-1 mutations, they've now gotten enough families so you can look up. If you know somebody's, pre- let's say their mother had Alzheimer's disease due to a presenilin-1 mutation, you can find if you knew what that mutation was, you can look up the average age of onset in that with within that mutation. Mm-hmm. Same with prion disorders. You know, because we find, you know, pathogenic and non-pathogenic mutations. And somebody comes to you bearing a sheet of paper, whether it's from, you know, a CLIA certified lab or, you know, 23andMe, say, well, what do I do with, you know, codon 62, you know, A to C? You know, there's ways to now look that up and say, this is probably pathogenic, this is probably non-pathogenic. And... Uh, I dealt with a case like this a couple of weeks ago in a uh, progranulin mutation. Uh, so that, and it seemed that based on the literature, uh, that it was pathogenic. So, uh, you know, an individual, yes, you can help individuals. Um, you know, we do, I'm working with a uh, colleague who's looking on using uh, a statistical method of, that is a predictive modeling method to see whether we can. Uh, predict who's going to be amyloid positive based on linear combinations of variables. That would be things like age, performance on memory testing, APOE status, so that we can get from a 20% base population level up to, let's say, 70-80%. So that would save money, be faster, and so enrollment into clinical trials, why does it take so long to develop a drug? Why is it taking 14 years? And, you know, can we make that seven? Well, part of it is how do we find people who meet, you know, relatively strict criteria uh, quicker? And we're going to be judged on this. You know, the the new model is large-scale studies and the sites, whether it's in San Antonio or Cleveland or uh, San Diego, are going to be judged on the metrics that they are producing. And so, you know, we're, as a site... Um, having to up our game too, you know. Data entry shouldn't have to wait a month, you know. Uh, reported adverse event reporting, you know, all of this has to be, you know, people are frustrated with the delays of institutional review boards. So there's a pu- big push to go on towards centralized institutional review boards uh, and central. You know, and this is the big science aspect, which is now. Again, there's a model for this, and this is Richard Nixon's War on Cancer. <laughs> and, you know, in 19, whatever it was, 1970s, he developed, you know, declared war on cancer, and he spent $50 billion so far. And it's amazing what the success, you know, it's a huge success, right? We have hundreds of drugs for cancer. And, but I think one of the things we learned from this is, if you look back, is we got people to work in teams. We got people to accept 
to do common protocols. I mean, it took nothing away from the individual in the lab, you know, studying the oncogenesis, but it meant that when you got into clinical trials, you, you had to basically buy in to the fact that these things are going to be done uh, in, in a large group of people. And, you know, it, it has been a huge success. So we've seen this now here in the United States, uh, things like uh, the Alzheimer's Cooperative Study, uh, you know, modeled on various things like that. Uh, where, and, it, and it's a good thing because the power of an individual site to do those kinds of studies is limited. You know, could I do a study just at my own site in Cleveland? Well, I could do a phase one study. I can do phase one B. I can do a phase two A. But, you know, if I want to scale to a, you know, a later stage large scale study, I better have some collaborators and friends. So do you see the statistical power yielding any more promising? I mean, because this, this has sort of happened in the last 10 years, right? The, right. Well, it's stuff. created biotech hell, right? <laughs> Where the earnest young professor comes up with the compound, tests it in mice and wants to get it into humans. And it's, it's very difficult you know, you either have to have a venture capital fund. Essentially, you do have to have a venture capital fund back you in order to get through what's literally called biotech hell, which is how do you get it into a, even to do a phase two study? You know, it's, it's expensive. And, you know, we're up against this now personally, you know, getting an IND from the FDA, you know, getting all, meeting all their things, you know, compounding, Data Safety Monitoring Board, you know. The, the, uh, well, this is why this disease in a dish model is your idea. I don't know how much, how, how uh, popular it's becoming, but it's, it's so alluring, right? I mean, how viable is it for looking at stuff like... Well, you know, I think... These end -stage I think well, I think the, it's a very alluring thing to, to get, to get like high throughput, uh, you know, drug, dr drug screening. We, we, should, we should remember that every drug that's failed, and there's lots of them, came with a backstory of why you should be testing it in the first place. You know, we studied statins and estrogens and multivitamins and omega-3s and prednisone and selegiline and vitamin E. Every last one of those had a backstory. You know, just the backstory didn't always... Carry over. Some were better than what others. What were they based on? Were, they, were these correlational things? Were these mechanistic? Um, were they some of them were correlational. Some of them were observational studies. Um, some of them were basic science. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, the selegiline and vitamin E was based on the whole uh, anti you know oxidative stress, and actually vitamin E, you know, did seem to slow down the progression of memory loss, and has found a role in clinical uh, studies. I mean, there's no money in vitamin E. And that's why it hasn't gone to the next, you know, taken it to the next level, uh, you know. But isn't, that, isn't that part of what the the big science is when you say it's an endeavor, is that you have someone constructing the overall framework and trying to balance the different priorities of things, right, rather than an individual entrepreneurial model where you just go after it for whatever the smaller uh, incentives are, right? I mean, you, you try to make a system that that presumably does better and more efficient at, at uh, deciding, the, making the steps work and then deciding on 
which goes through and so forth and so forth. I mean, isn't that what that's what you're talking about when you're talking about big science, right? I mean, I whether am. you're successful or not. Well, you're talking about huge bets. Well, this is the, this the, is the problem. Negative data in most worlds is meaningful data in some respect. And in a lot of these clinical trials, where is there meaningful data falling out? Is or are they just a complete, you know? No, there's atom a difference. Bomb. There's a difference between a negative study and a failed study. I mean, a failed study would be like we didn't recruit enough people. Uh, a negative study, we didn't meet our endpoints, but we've learned an enormous amount about clinical trial methodology and inclusion exclusion criteria and, you know, factorial designs. And so the science of clinical trials has, uh, has, has, you know, continues to evolve. You know, I mean, are we not doing enough N of one? Studies should we be doing that? Uh, you know, I'm not even saying where the field is going. I do have my own thoughts about that. We'll come back to that in a second. But you know, we've learned a lot about clinical trials design and you know what are what are the best outcomes. What are you know? There's a number of lots of tools. You know, rating scales for this and that or the other thing have been developed. And so that there's a lot. And some of that does come back to the clinic. Some of it doesn't come back to the clinic. Um, you know, uh, I think ultimately, at least in dementia, we're probably going to end up with the cocktail approach to treatment, much like we do in cardiovascular disease. In cardiovascular disease, you have, you know, uh, a diuretic, you have a positive inotrope, you, know, you have an afterload reducer, uh, you know, you have a, any number of things that, you know, to treat atherosclerotic heart disease. Uh, and so it's quite possible that in Alzheimer's, let's say, is the paradigm of a neurodegenerative disorder, we're going to have, you know, an antioxidant, perhaps vitamin E. We might have a cholinesterase inhibitor, Aricept or the others. Uh, maybe we'll have a monoclonal antibody anti-amyloid agent. Maybe we'll have a beta-secretase inhibitor. Maybe we'll have something we haven't even thought about yet. But it's likely that it's quite possible, like other complex diseases such as schizophrenia or heart disease that we're going to end up with the cocktail approach. But some of this gets back a little bit to, I guess, the brain health where you have to integrate the cocktail approach of, of treating disease versus uh, healthy living and integrating with a health. Oh, yeah, we haven't even gotten to this. Why, why do Americans love pills? Right. We love pills. And as I showed... Today, you know, help doesn't always come in the form of a pill. It might come in the form of your cataract extraction. Uh, that, that we haven't, you know, why do we always jump to a pill? Well, it's because the effect of big pharma. Uh, <laughs> so how is that? Is that is and it, so, the, again, you know. Is doc, cardiac disease a model for the, is there any model? In, in terms yeah, of I mean, cardiac disease is an excellent model in terms of physical exercise and diet, you know, and how much. How Successful much, model or. <laughs> Well, I think a huge percentage of, of what we consider, you know, the extension of lifestyle in the 20th century is because of public health measures. You know, cleaner drinking water, you know, better hygiene, reduction of, you know, fecal oral transmission, better, cleaner food. I mean, I think there is a little bit of irony in the fact that in the richest nation that's ever been, we still don't feel that our diets are adequate. <laughs> that we still need something to supplement our diet. It says something really pretty terrible about our food distribution system. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, of course. I think that we cannot discount, you know, because why the Framingham study showed 20% decline in dementia incidents per decade. And what's driving that? Is it better education? Is it, it's not just simply better case detection. I don't, I don't think that it's just like, because that should work in the opposite direction. If we have better case detection, there should be more cases, not less cases. Yeah, I mean, I thought there were, I thought there was all these correlations between the rise in diabetes and the rise in dementia that are being pointed at. Well, diabetes certainly is a risk, huge risk factor. And diabetes is bad in its own right. But it's a treatable disorder. And so we, you know, you can't neglect, I think Todd's point is really well taken, which is how can you, you can't neglect uh, the effect of just general health measures and brain health is health. Right. Well, you got the question, I guess, that's interested in this kind of interface is whether you can not only not neglect it, but whether can you... Can you make that work well with a big science model? Can you, can you, you know, structurally uh, balance that along with the basic science is, is, is part of an interface with public health as much as the different kinds of clinical and basic... Well, this gets into how do you do a diet study, and diet studies are really hard. Diet studies typically are hard and slow and require huge ends. Uh, and so, but you could conceivably fold that into a large uh, phase three study. You know, half the people get nuts. You know, half the people get a glass of wine, you know, get some resveratrol, you know, to, to do a factorial design to, to put in a non-pharmacological. Why does everything have to be drug, drug, drug? Excellent. Thank you for talking to us about this today. Um, This has been uh, Alan Lerner visiting with us at Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, Alan. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Sorry, we're running into your next